Well, if you've been with us uh, for the past few weeks, you know we've been going through a series in the book of Luke, uh, through the gospel of Luke as Jesus travels towards Jerusalem. Uh, He's been making this journey, and last week we saw Jesus uh, right at the entrance to the city. He's received with joy and praises by his disciples. Uh, They're they're praising his name. They're throwing down cloaks on the road as he rides in on a donkey, praising him as the king who has come. What's interesting about this time is the very next passage that Luke records. He records uh, what's going on with Jesus. We see, uh, last week, we see the crowds praising Jesus, rejoicing, celebrating the king is coming, And yet in the midst of all this, Luke records that Jesus is weeping. Everybody else celebrating. Everybody else enjoying that the king is here. And yet Jesus is weeping. Why is that? Uh, We're only told in, in all of the Bible that Jesus weeps three times. He may have wept others, but only three are recorded for us. Uh, When Lazarus, his friend died, Jesus wept. Even though he's about to raise him from the dead. We also, the the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus wept uh, in in the Garden of Gethsemane. In that moment, that trial before the cross. So he weeps when there's grief, when there's death. He, He weeps when there's great trials and tribulations ahead of him. Why does he weep now? Why does he weep when people are receiving him as the king? When people are are joyful, when they're celebrating? Why does Jesus weep? Uh, Jesus' uh, sadness here, his his lament, his, his weeping is not the only emotion we see. As we continue on in our passage, we see that uh, Jesus also has this righteous anger that shows up. So we see he's weeping, his anger, and the question is, what do these emotions that Jesus has, what do they teach us about Jesus? What do they teach us about his heart for his people? So if you have your Bible or if you just have the the page open in front of you, Luke chapter 19 is where our uh, passage comes from today, verses 41 uh, to 46. I'll read it and then we'll go through it uh, together. It says, and when he, this is Jesus, drew near and saw the city, saw Jerusalem, the city he's about to enter, he wept over it, saying, would that you... Even you had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So again, two emotions we see here of Jesus, his weeping and his righteous anger. And so if we just look at the first one uh, together, Jesus weeping, the question again I asked at the beginning is, what what is it that makes Jesus weep? Uh, These are not tears of, of joy, they're tears of sorrow. And what we see in verse 42 is that it is ultimately Jerusalem's rejection of their king. Uh, Look at what he says in verse 42. He says, would that you, even you, Jerusalem, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And we see later on that he says that they did not know the time of their visitation. 
And the idea is, is simply this. Yes, there are some people who are really excited to receive Jesus now. They're joyful. They're celebrating. But Jesus knows this isn't how it's going to end. He knows that his entrance into Jerusalem means his eventual death. That this city will, led by the, the leaders and religious people of the, of the day, they will put Jesus to death. They will reject God's king who he has sent to them. And Jesus is, is sad not for himself. He knows he's about to go and be crucified. And yet he's not sad because he's about to endure this great trial. He's not sad because of the difficulties that lay ahead of them. He's weeping over the city. He's weeping over these people. Not for himself, but for others. And that's because he knows that because they have rejected God's king, there is going to be judgment. That's what he says in verse 43 and 44. He says, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you, and hem you in on every side, and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. And this is exactly what happens. In 66 AD, about 30 years after Jesus is crucified, give or take, uh, the Jewish people led an uprising, a revolt, in the area of Judea. An uprising against the people who ruled over them, the Romans. This uprising took place, they took control of certain cities, Roman garrisons, and drove the Romans out. The Romans didn't like this. Uh, So they sent the full force of Rome to Judea to put down this rebellion. And over the the course of a few years, they slowly went around Judea, conquering and reconquering the cities which they once had control of. By 70 AD, there's really only one city left, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And so Rome uh, comes, and the, the Roman, uh, or the Jewish historian, Josephus, he was uh, part of this uh, Jewish revolt, eventually defected to the Romans. He's there when the Romans approach Jerusalem, on the Roman side. And he tells us that there's probably about 60,000 Roman soldiers coming to the city of Jerusalem, about 20,000 Jewish soldiers inside the city. But many more people were there. There were probably hundreds of thousands of people that had gathered for refuge and safety in the city. It was near the time of Passover, so many people had gone into the city. There was a lot of people there. And the Romans come with their full force. And of course, uh, Jerusalem has three layers of walls. They break through the first two. But the last one is hard. The Jewish people are putting up a fight. And so what the Roman general, Titus, does is he does what the Romans love to do, and they build a giant wall around the entire city. Eight kilometers around the city of Jerusalem, they build a wall, and they build it in three days. Once that wall is up, the Jewish people in Jerusalem had been going out at night to gather supplies. They had messengers coming in and out. Once that wall is up, there's no going in and there's no going out. Jerusalem was surrounded. There was no escape. Those who tried to escape, those who tried to get supplies were crucified when they were caught by the Romans. It's at this point, it's just a matter of time. There's no way to get supplies. The city begins to go into a famine. Uh, There's people who are dying just on the streets because they don't have food. There's reports of cannibalism in the city. Slowly but surely, the city is worn down. Eventually, the Romans break through the wall and they come through the city and they slaughter most of the people there. And not only do they kill the people, they start to set fire to the city, tearing down the temple and many of the walls in the city. Almost the whole city leveled, except for a few buildings which they left just to show how great Jerusalem used to be. 
but now it was leveled, flat, just as Jesus had predicted. So we see here, of course Jesus is, is sad. Of course he's weeping. He knows what's about to happen to the city in a few years' time. But what does this weeping tell us about Jesus? Well, I think this weeping really shows Jesus' heart for these people. These people who he knows would reject him. He really, he really cares for the people. We weep over things that we care about, that we love, that are precious to us. Uh, a few years ago, uh, my, my kids were getting into uh, soccer, and so I showed them uh, a World Cup game. Uh, it was a few years back when Brazil was hosting the World Cup. And Brazil, everybody in Brazil was excited. Brazil had a great team that year. And they got to the semifinal. And there was this game they played against Germany. Some of you will remember this game. And Germany just squashed them. Like it was just, I think it was like 7-1 was the score. It was just a blowout. And everybody's there in Brazil. All the fans have been cheering, been hoping. And as we're watching the video, they cut to the, the shot of the crowd. And in the crowd, you just see these grown men like sobbing, like weeping, like wailing because their team had lost. And I remember one of my kids being like, Dad, why are they crying? And I was like, well, they really care about soccer. Maybe a bit too much, but they really care. But that's why they're weeping because it's so important to them. See, Jesus, when he weeps, he doesn't weep for soccer. He weeps for people. He weeps for weightier things, more important things. It, it grieves him that there's people who are going to experience this judgment. His tears really show us his love. Right? There's things in our own life, things that we weep over, and there's things that we don't. You know, we, we can hear on the news, maybe a, a, of, you know, deaths, of catastrophes, and we can be hit hard by those. We can feel the force of, of those things that happen. But we often, I don't think, weep over those things. Because although we, we care about what's going on, it, it's not personal. We don't, we don't really care that much. But if you have someone in your life who passes away, a tragedy that happens to someone you know or in your own life, you weep. Why? Because you, you really care. You really care about it. It's not just peripheral. Jesus really cares for the people of Jerusalem. He cares for those who would reject him. Uh, we have to remember Jesus experienced emotions just like we do. Sometimes we're, we're so focused on the fact that, you know, Jesus is God, his divinity, that we forget his humanity. We forget that Jesus actually was a human who experienced things like you and I do. It was not simply that when Jesus came to earth, he was God who inhabited a human body. No, no, he took on the fullness of humanity. He was both truly God and truly human. And in taking on his humanity, he did not give up any of his divinity. But that both are brought together in a, a way which nothing is lost from either. He, he was truly human in the sense that you and I are. He hungered, thirsted. He was weary, he felt pleasure, he felt pain, he felt joy, and he felt grief. But not only did he just feel those things, he felt them, in a sense, more than you and I do. 
He, he felt emotions more purely, more deeply, more intensely. And I borrow this insight from uh, Pastor Dane Ortland. He noted that we need to remember that everything in the world has been stained with sin. That sin has affected all of the world, including all of us. Even our emotions are tainted by sin. They are not the, the fullness of what our emotions ought to be before we have fallen under the curse of sin. Let me give you an example. Uh, when I went to school, I went uh, often to SFU's downtown campus, down in Vancouver. And uh, downtown there, there was the downtown east side, East Hastings, if you haven't been there. Uh, just tons of people out on the streets, homeless, in difficult situations. And I would often walk through there. And as I would walk through, I felt some compassion for these people. Obviously, it's hard not to. But my compassion was kind of half-hearted, if you know what I mean. It, it was restrained because I, I, I'm the kind of person who, like all of us, I think more about my own interests than the interests of others. I, I couldn't fully have that, all the compassion that I should because I was thinking about myself. I was thinking about what else is going on. I'm thinking about my own needs and not the needs of others because I'm a sinner. I, I don't feel compassion like I should. But Jesus, his emotions are not tainted with that sin. Although he was truly human, his human faculties were not affected by sin. So when Jesus feels compassion, it is the pure, clear, unfiltered, undistorted emotion that he feels. I mean, just think, what would it, what would it be like to feel the full force, the, the dams opening, the floodgates coming of, of full, unrestrained compassion? Oh, what would that feel like to, to really feel compassion the way we ought to for people around us? That's what Jesus felt. He felt it for those people uh, in Jerusalem. It is this deep pity, anguish, lament for those who would reject their Savior. Jesus, earlier in the Gospel of Luke, uh, he writes this in, in chapter 13. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. He's desirous. He wants them to come and yet they are not willing. They have rejected their king. And I know for many of us, we know people who are not willing we know people who have rejected Jesus as their king. And it's painful because these people we really care for. And we weep often like Jesus did. We weep for those who have rejected Jesus. And can I just say this? When we weep for those people, Jesus weeps with us. In fact, it might even be better to say, that when we weep, it is not that Jesus weeps with us, but we weep with Jesus. See, he is the one with the ultimate compassion who actually cares for these people far more than you or I do. He loves them with a love that we cannot fathom. And he longs for their salvation. See, we see this tender heart of Jesus for those, even those who would oppose him who would reject him. 
But this heart of Jesus, it's not just seen in, in his shedding of tears. It's seen in his shedding of blood. Jesus doesn't just weep and leave it there. No, Jesus enters into the city to die on behalf of those who would oppose him. He doesn't just weep for those who reject him. He sacrifices himself for those who would reject him. See, we all deserve that, that judgment. And yet Jesus comes to die on the cross to take the judgment that we deserve. To take the punishment that each one of us deserves. All who have rejected Jesus must face judgment at some point. The, the, Roman, or the, the Jerusalem, it was the Romans surrounding their city. There was no escape for them. And yet each of us has a judgment that we cannot escape either. Death will come for all of us. And much like Jerusalem, surrounded by the Romans, death is one thing we cannot escape. There's, there's no escape hatch. There's no secret exit. There's no parachuting out. We have to face the music. It's a matter of time before that judgment comes. But the good news of what Jesus has done is not that we would escape the punishment we deserve. Not that we would escape death. But that there is a promise of hope that comes through death. Not that we would escape death. All of us will experience death. But for those who have trusted Jesus to have paid the penalty for their sin, there is hope that comes through death, out on the other side. Death, for those who trust in Jesus, becomes now a river that we wade through rather than an ocean that we cannot possibly swim across. We look to the other side as Jesus was resurrected, trusting that he will resurrect us because the punishment has been paid. The judgment has been taken. And so for those of us who are here, and to come to Jesus seems difficult, I hope you can see in this passage that Jesus' heart for us is one who longs for us to come. He weeps over those who would reject him. He longs for them to come to him, to know him as their king. So that's Jesus weeping. But Jesus weeping again is not the only emotion that we see here. We see Jesus' righteous anger in the next few verses. Look at verse 45 and 46. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Uh, so what's going on here? Why is it that Jesus gets so upset that he goes and he drives out all the people in the temple? Calls them a bunch of robbers. Well, the problem isn't so much what people were doing as where they were doing it. Uh, there were people in the temple who were exchanging money. There were people who were selling animals uh, for sacrifices, people who had come from long journeys. Uh, and that, there wasn't actually a problem with that. So people needed somewhere to buy the animals that they would sacrifice. They needed to be able to exchange their money. The problem was that they were doing it on temple grounds, specifically in the court of the Gentiles. Now, if you know anything about 
the Jewish temple at that time, uh, there was a, the actual physical temple, the building. And in that building, only the priests could enter. But just outside that building was what's called the court of men, a courtyard there where, where the Jewish men could gather, worship, and pray. Outside of that courtyard was another one surrounding it, the court of women, for Jewish women to also be able to go. And outside that was one last large courtyard called the court of the Gentiles. And that was where anyone, man or woman, Jew or Gentile, those who weren't Jews, could come and worship and pray to God. And so when Jesus uh, comes and he rebukes those in the temple and he drives them out, he quotes from Isaiah 56. Uh, and this uh, quote from Isaiah 56, the, the whole passage is really talking about how God's people, there's going to be foreigners who are going to join to God's people and his house, his temple is going to be a house of prayer for all people. Uh, look with me if you have your sheet in front of you at Isaiah 56, verses 6 and 7. It says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. So all those who are, they may not be Jews, but they choose to follow God. They choose to follow Yahweh. These I will bring to my holy mountain, the, the temple, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. But here's the problem. The Gentiles can't come and worship God. They can't come and pray to God. Why? Because there's a marketplace in their temple. There's people buying and selling goats, exchanging money. All of it had been set up as this huge marketplace. And as one commentator said, it's really hard to pray in a supermarket. Right? That, that's the idea that you're coming in and you, you want to worship God, you want to pray to him, and yet there's all this other stuff going on. You, you can't properly do that. And to make matters worse, uh, the, the Jewish leaders had kind of got involved in this and they were uh, taking some of the, the money that was being exchanged, kind of taking a cut of it, making a financial profit from people who wanted to worship God. And so Jesus has this righteous anger as he drives out the people from the temple grounds. And I say righteous anger because there is an anger that is sinful. In fact, that's the anger most of us probably experience and give out most of the time. Most of our anger is not sinful because our anger revolves around us. You know, we get upset because someone's not driving fast enough and we can't get where we want fast enough. Or we get upset because people in our lives hurt us. They do things that, that are inconvenient for us. And we get upset, we get angry. But there is an anger that is righteous, an anger that is not sinful. And that's an anger that centers on the good of others and the glory of God. And so Jesus' righteous anger was done out of love for the people who could not worship. They were not able to come and pray and worship him. And so his anger is motivated by that. He didn't want to see people stopped, inhibited from worshiping God. You can imagine it kind of like uh, if you have a doctor, family doctor, owns their own practice, got a little clinic set up, and the doctor loves their patients. They care about them. They want them to receive uh, the best care that they can. And so the doctor's heading away for vacation for a month. And so he calls up a doctor friend and says, hey, can you cover me? For this month, I want my patients to still get the care that they need. 
And he says, okay, yeah, sure. So the doctor goes away for the month, comes back. And when he comes back, he, he finds that his office is not still set up as a, a, a doctor's office. The whole thing has been converted into a, a, a spam call center. There's just people in there making calls, computers whirring, trying to scam people of their money. And you can imagine this doctor coming in, just often being like, what is going on? You can come in, this is not what I meant my office for. And he comes and he, you know, throws the computers to the side, disconnects the phone, says, get out. This is not what this place was meant for. And Jesus, when he comes into the temple, says, this is a house of prayer. This is not what this place was meant for. See, he loves those people who cannot worship. And so his anger is motivated, comes out of his love. If Jesus didn't really care about the people, he wouldn't be angry. There'd be nothing to be angry about. But because he cares so deeply for those people, and he wants what's best for them to be able to worship and love God and pray, that's why he's angry. And for us, the, the temple no longer exists. Like I said, the, the temple was torn down in 70 AD. And what's interesting is you find, after that time, early Christians beginning to take this text and apply it to themselves, not to the temple. And I think they do that because they understand what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? There was a place where God met with men, where he came and dwelled among his people. And yet, now that the spirit has come, God's spirit dwells in people. His, his presence is with his people, with his church. And so, if Jesus came and cleansed that temple, because there were things that were hindering people from prayer, do you not much more think Jesus desires to drive out certain things out of our life that are hindering us from prayer, from worship of him? Are there things in our faith and life that need to be cleansed? They might not be wrong things, but perhaps they've been put in the wrong spot in the wrong priority. We need to understand that there is actually an anger that God feels towards our sin. There is an anger, but we need to also know that that anger proceeds from his love. It comes from his love because that sin is the very thing that is keeping us from him the thing that is best for us, for worshiping him, enjoying him, communion with our king. So in both of these situations, both Jesus weeping and his anger, those emotions, though they're totally different, they're not opposed to one another. They, they both come from the same source. They both come from his love. His love for people. He weeps over those who would reject. And he drives out that which is wrong and not best for his people. That keep them from the worship of God. And so I hope we see today, from this passage, is Jesus going through. We, we see a glimpse into Jesus' heart. We see his love coming out in these emotions. It, it, it gives us just a, a quick glimpse 
of his heart and his love for his people, both in his weeping and in his anger. Let me pray for us and then we'll worship together. Father, we do just thank you. We thank you that you have sent Jesus to be the, the substitution for our sin, to take on the judgment we deserve. And Lord, we just ask uh, that you would continue to cleanse us and purify us. Make us a holy people that would glorify your name. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.